Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and I'm joined today again by Pastor Michael Payne. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing? Good. Hey, so what we're going to be talking about today is, man, this is a topic that I, I really care a lot about. I think it's super practical. It's also got a million applications. And so I hope that we're able to present it in a way that really helps our listeners understand uh, this concept and and maybe deal with some of these things, think through uh, the things that they do during the day, you know, kind of like, um, you know, in, our, in the midst of cultural practices, it's like the, they say there's the fish uh, who, you know, two fish are hanging out, another fish swims by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And then the fish swims by and then the other fish says to him, what's water, right? I mean, we swim in this culture and we don't always get outside of it. So I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. What we're going to be talking about today is something that I wrote my bachelor's dissertation on. And it could be summed up in the, the sentence, which is a famous historical sentence, which says, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? But as we'll see, this has everything to do with like how we as Christians deal with practices like yoga, psychology, music, and a million other things, including missions and contextualization. So why don't I just kick it over to you, Mike? You can ask me some questions and let's make sure we help people understand this topic. Yeah, no, this is a, this is quite a wide ranging. I mean, you know, you're talking about doing your dissertation and people are like, well, you know, this sounds like going to school, but this affects everybody that's listening to this podcast. They deal with these questions every single day. And especially, you know, in our culture today, we're asking these questions. And and you you had said that, the, you know, this debate, this idea of what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem comes from a historical debate between Tertullian and Justin Martyr. And, you know, just getting, basically getting to the issues of how Christians relate to truth, you know, the idea is all truth is God's truth. These kind of phrases that kind of people throw around, what what that all means. But so, why don't we just kind of start right there? What was this debate between Tertullian and Justin Martyr? Yeah, so Justin Martyr is one of the earliest Christian theologians. Um, he actually lived before Tertullian. So Tertullian came after Justin Martyr and essentially disagreed with him on this one thing. So here was the deal with Justin Martyr. He was born around the year 100. Um, so this is really in the wake of the Christian movement. He's born after the death of all the apostles, but he's around the next generation of of Christian leaders who had been with the apostles. Like we know like Clement of Rome, for example, was a disciple of Peter and he would have been around at this time and uh, a companion of Justin Martyr's. So Justin Martyr becomes one of the first uh, theologians of the church, uh, meaning that he wrote out actual, like what we call systematic theology, which simply means here's what the Bible says about this topic. Here's what the Bible says about this topic, right? And so he wrote these things and he wrote some disputations with people who either were not Christians, in in most cases that was what it was, defending Christianity, and that was that was really good, really needed at that time. And so Justin Martyr, though, prior to becoming a Christian, he had been a Stoic Greek philosopher. He had been trained as a Greek philosopher. Then he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believed it. He was saved. And then what he said is, he, he just kind of reflected on, on his time as a Greek philosopher. And he said, you know, when I came to believe in Jesus, I didn't, it didn't require me to reject all of the things that I had believed as 
a philosopher. And he says, you know, just thinking back, there were a lot of things that Greek philosophy got right, but they didn't get it completely right. So they got some right, but without the special revelation of God in the Bible and through Jesus Christ, we would have never come to the full conclusion, right? Like you couldn't just figure it out through what we call general revelation, meaning you look around at the world and make observations, which is essentially what the Greeks did, right? They studied the world, they studied human nature, and they tried to make some conclusions. And some of those conclusions, Justin Martyr says, were correct, and some were not, and, and many were incomplete. And so he says that when he came to know Jesus, he said that Christianity and the way of Jesus is the true philosophy. And so... Um, he, he really encouraged, of course, he was engaging with other philosophers and he would use these starting points to say, hey, you already believe this. Well, here's why that's true. And he would go to the Bible and then he would say, but here's what you're missing. And he would point to Jesus. And so one of the things that he said was there's, there's this idea in, um, it's in John chapter one, verse nine, Jesus is called the light, which gives light to every person. And he says, well, what that means is that there is this divine spark, if you will, that God has put into human beings since we are created in his image. We're fallen. We haven't completely lost that image. So it remains in us that we are able to discern things about God by um, and true things about God by observing nature, etc. Okay, so then, you know, Justin Martyr passes away. His writings are still in um, you know, being distributed and in existence, serving the church. Well, a little bit later comes along Tertullian. Now, Tertullian lived in North Africa, which at that time, kind of like modern day Tunisia, and that was a, a Latin speaking area. So, remember, Justin Martyr, he's in the Greek speaking part of the Roman Empire. Then there's this whole Latin speaking empire, which is mostly Italy and North Africa. And so, Tertullian is the first great. Christian theologian from the Latin-speaking world. And he, um, he reads the writings of Justin Martyr. Remember, he's separated from them from quite some time. And he says, well, I actually kind of disagree with this guy. I think, and this is where the phrase comes, he goes, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Basically what he's saying is, as Christians, we have the Bible, so why do we need Greek philosophy? Like, even if they got something right— the Bible contains everything we need, as Peter says, for life and godliness. Therefore, we shouldn't mess with Greek philosophy. We shouldn't study it. We, there's no need for us to even look at it. Um, because if it says something true that's also said in the scriptures, then it's unnecessary. But not only is it unnecessary, in some cases it might even be harmful. And we could use the analogy of a watermelon, right? We always say, eat the uh, watermelon or eat the fruit and spit out the seeds or eat the meat and spit out the bones. Well, what Tertullian would say is as much as you try to spit out the seeds or spit out the bones, you will inevitably accidentally swallow some and they will hurt you and make you sick and poison you, if you will. So he said, you know, hey, we have the Bible. What do we need uh, Greek philosophy for? Now, that argument has played out in history in a million different ways, 
and has gone on. You can follow it through every age of Christianity, and you can follow it into Christian practice today when it comes to things which come from, let's say, outside of Christianity. Uh, Justin Martyr would say, we can. there are good elements that we can use, even for our benefit, even for the furtherance of the mission of God. Um, and Tertullian would say, um, even if there are, we shouldn't use them because they come from non-Christian sources and we don't need them and they're potentially dangerous. Yeah, that, another phrase that came to my mind that I've heard used in this context, you know, that probably falls on the side of Tertullian would be like, you know, even though it's probably used out of context from scripture, but a little yeast, you know, leavens the whole lump. You know, the idea that, well, if you let a little of this stuff in, then you're just going to ruin it all and you're just going to, you know, the purity of the church is going to be, you know, uh, devastated in a sense. And, but, you know, the, the question, you know, comes that is it possible then for, for non-Christians to like stumble upon practices that then are beneficial to us as Christians, even in following the Lord? You know, mm, yeah, that is the big question. And I'd love to like give some examples here. Because I think there are things that we like do without thinking that the, through them and how they actually apply to this debate. But essentially, that's exactly what Justin Martyr said. In fact, he said that. He said, you know, just as a ship in a storm might accidentally find its way um, to a harbor, or just as a, a person in complete darkness might stumble upon a door, in the same way, people who do not uh, know the Lord Jesus, right, who don't have the Holy Spirit within them, might stumble upon things that are actually true. And the question is, should we then use those things? Now, throughout history, like, okay, here's some great examples. If you look at um, Thomas Aquinas, who wrote um, this great thing called Summa Theologica, which is a summary of theology, man, if that's a summary... That I don't know. It's like sixteen thousand pages long, or something. It's ridiculously long. So it's well, not- we looked at that book on your shelf yesterday. It said uh, 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 it was like what? It was about. It was very quite a thick book, and it said an introduction to general theology. <laughs> like, yeah. This is the introduction. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. So he writes this book, and you know he he draws a ton on Aristotle and Plato, and. Um, yeah, was that good? Like, is it good to do that? Is it good to draw a lot of our conclusions about Christian theology from Aristotle and Plato? That's the big question. But let's bring it more practically. Um, some people would say that in their Christianity, they've been greatly benefited by yoga. Some people would say that in their Christian faith and practice, they have been greatly benefited by psychology. Let's make it really practical. In our churches, right, we, we use drums. Um, now, the history of drums, first people probably used drums, but it was probably related to some sort of pagan practice, maybe. Um, there, there was also, you know, what about electric guitars? You, you told me this great quote from Larry Norman. Uh, what was that? Oh, why, did the, why does the devil have all the good music? <laughs> yeah. And that was like, okay, so that's from like the 60s or 70s, yeah. right? When the Christians are like, there's this rock music out there. Some people are like, that's the devil's music. And then Christians said, hey, why does that have to be the devil's music? Why can't we 
play that music, but praise God with it. And now we have, you know, contemporary Christian music isn't considered breaking edge anymore or cutting edge cutting anymore. Edge. It's like, um, you know, whatever you hear it now, it's just normal that we have drums, electric guitars, and essentially rock beats behind music. And we consider that normal, but you got to understand at one time, the idea that you would use that music in a church, the idea that you would use that music to talk about God was considered by some people to be, um, you know, a bridge way too far. Like you cannot go there. That's, that's the devil's music. That would be like Tertullian's whole point. What has, you know, rock and roll to do with Jerusalem? What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very, very true. I mean, and I think probably a lot has to do with semantics today as well, and defining, you know, the, the that term rock and roll, of course, was was in itself not a, it was a phrase that was meant, meant something not so good back in the day. So it's something that we, you know, people would argue about that. But the, so the, the question, I guess, you know, so let's talk about some of those things. Let's talk about you know the idea of yoga. I mean, I know, I know somebody, and and she uses yoga as a way of of just kind of calming down. Like it's a way just to, you know, to when she's stressed out, to go through these stretching practices and breathing and all of that kind of stuff. And so she does none of nothing related to you know any kind of Indian practices. But people would say that is wrong. She should not be doing that. She should go to the scripture and she should read the Psalms or read a passage of scripture that calms and be totally stress-free in Jesus. She should just do that. So, you know, how do we balance those questions today? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go even further and just throw this one out there. How about Christmas? Because some people have pointed out that the origin of Christmas, the date for Christmas, have you ever noticed it's on like the shortest day of the year as far as in the Northern Hemisphere? Uh, and the reason is because um, that was a pagan festival celebrating the winter solstice. And when Christianity came into the Roman Empire, then Christians decided, hey, instead of, we'll, we'll keep the, the festival since that's already a holiday but we'll change the meaning of it. We'll choose that as the day when we celebrate Jesus' birthday, even though we, we most, most everyone would agree Jesus certainly couldn't have been born on that day because of uh, several factors in the New Testament story. So that's clearly not Jesus' actual birthday. Um, he was probably born at another time of the year. But since we don't know when Jesus was born, we're going to choose a day. And rather than this pagan festival, we're going to infuse this pagan festival with Christian meaning, and we're going to use it instead to worship Jesus. Some people would look at that and say, that is a great way to redeem something. And other people would look at that and say, nope, no matter how much you try to redeem it, the roots of it are still pagan, and therefore it is corrupt and should be rejected. And so you, you, there are literally Christian denominations who will not celebrate Christmas. And then there, there are many others who do celebrate Christmas. Or they're like hybrids. We'll do yes. Christmas, but no tree. Or right. we'll do, you know, they'll, they'll kind of take some practices and, you know, decide which ones they feel work and which they don't, you know. Yeah. And it becomes, yeah, now we're deciding what we think about Christmas, you know. 
um, yeah, no, that's a very, Halloween probably is another one like as, as that as well. You know, people turn it, some churches turn it into harvest festivals where they will redeem, as you, you know, that's a good phrase to redeem the, the holiday or whatever it might be, uh, you know, for Jesus in, in a sense. And I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Are there things that we can, you know, redeem? And, and at what point is, as you said, as, is that a bridge too far? At what point, like, you know, are we, you know, nowadays there's a lot of this new age um, thought coming back in the church. There are Christian writers that are writing things that say we need to adopt the practices of shamans and, and these kind of things to, because they have stumbled, you know, they've stumbled onto ways of of tapping into like the fourth dimension. And we've heard this stuff before. This is some very popular, there was a book actually written in the fourth dimension, the idea of tapping into this dimension of, of visualizing your, your, your future and visualizing these kind of things. This has been around in the church. Like where, where, how do we, you know, what are some principles that we can use that kind of, you know, guide us through this process? Yeah. Before I answer that, yeah. let me let me just uh, share with you a good example of what you're talking yeah. about, and that is uh, I mentioned this in my dissertation when I was studying for it. I came across this book that had been written by some Roman Catholic monks, and I just thought this was pretty interesting because it really represents exactly what we're talking about. They said this. Um, here's a quote from this book. It says, we should not hesitate to take the fruit of the age-old wisdom of the East and, quote, capture it for Christ. Many Christians who take their prayer life seriously have been greatly helped by yoga, Zen, transcendental meditation, and similar practices, especially where they have been initiated by reliable teachers and have solidly developed Christian faith to find inner form and meaning to the resulting experiences. So, you know, this would follow the same line of thinking, but somewhere there's a line, right? Like, I'm not sure where it is, but to me, this does seem like it's going too far. Um, but so it's like, okay, so use the same kind of logic of like, let's say a Justin Martyr that says, hey, there are things which are out, which uh, originated outside of Christianity, but they can be utilized for good. Like we can glean from them. So for example, um, you know, Christmas, we in, in we give it a new meaning and we celebrate Jesus on that day, which was formerly used to celebrate uh, pagan things. Um, or let's say rock music, right? Well, we can use those guitars and drums and instead worship Jesus instead of worshiping the devil. And, and these guys are saying, well, let's keep going, right? Like, how about Zen? How about transcendental meditation? How about all these things? Um, at what point do you cross the line? I think that's a really good question. And I'm not sure that that line is hard and fast and black and white. Like, because again, if you're celebrating Christmas, you're, you're following that same practice. If you are, uh, you know, listening to music that has drums and guitars, you're doing that. And yet something in me says, Hey, Zen transcendental meditation to me, that's just, it's too much from something that is clearly not Christian. So let's get back to the topic of yoga. That's an interesting one because it's like, 
is there anything inherently good or bad about making certain movements with your body? I would say no, right? Like if you're a Christian and you make a particular movement with your body that helps your body, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's the issue is that these movements, the order, the way that it's all done came out of a particular pagan religion, which is Hinduism. It worships multiple gods and it had a religious significance. And so can you do those movements without um, getting into the religious significance of them? I think you probably can, but this would be Tertullian's point. Even if you, even if you can, why would you want to? I mean, isn't it unnecessary on the one hand and potentially dangerous on the other hand? So, so I tend to find myself sympathizing with what Tertullian says and seeing in it um, something really important, right? On the other hand, um, I, I do think that there's something to what Justin Martyr says. So again, there's a tension between the two. And somewhere, um, somewhere there's like a gray area where we can, we can live and still worship Jesus. I, I'm not sure I know what it is. Yeah, I mean, you could throw in martial arts and all of that. I mean, yeah. all of the Eastern martial arts, whether it's karate or kung fu or anything, they have their, they have their source. They have their, you know, their base in in a particular spiritual. And there's a huge spiritual aspect to that particular thing. The, I mean, I know kung fu is definitely that way. It has, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily worshiping a god per se, but there's this whole spiritual aspect to it that when you learn it, especially in the East, you learn all of that with it. Now here in the West, we've kind of separated all of that from them. And that should we not be doing jujitsu? And, you know, what about MMA that Christians are all into? You know, that most of those guys have studied all of that stuff and, you know, come, you know, and learned all that stuff that's rooted in a lot of pagan practices uh, that we can't separate. I mean, you know, maybe that's a question, you know, associations, time, you know, these are all, you know, questions that, that come up. You know, we talk about music. Sometimes it's, you know, should should we be singing songs, you know, nowadays, should we sing songs that, that come from a church that we know is heretical? You know, and then people will throw out, well, this guy wrote a hymn 500 years ago, and then he became a heretic. So we should stop singing that hymn. You know, these these associations and time. Like, you know, my friend, you know, who's doing yoga, she has no thought of those pagan practices, you know. You know, Paul maybe addressed some of these things when he's talking about meat offered to idols, you know. Those, you know, there you live in Corinth, there's a thing that you might be eating meat that was offered to an idol. And then Paul was like, well... You know, is this is this a thing of conscience? You know, maybe that's the line we're talking about. You can't do it from uh, a good conscience. You know, maybe that's for you sin. But if somebody else can do their body stretches and and do all that kind of thing and not have an issue with it, you know, maybe that's you know. Well, I think that's a fabulous um, 
parallel that you're drawing there between that and and really so thankful, right? I think it's funny because I think sometimes when people read those chapters about meat sacrifice to idols, it just seems so foreign, so so like so so distant from us, and yet so incredibly applicable. So I think that is those passages about that. So those are found in First Corinthians eight through ten, and then also in Romans fourteen. And yeah, that's incredibly applicable. So Romans 14 is the passage you're talking about where Paul says, hey, if you can't do it from a pure conscience uh, unto the Lord, like if you have a check in your spirit, we would say, or check in your conscience that says that you should not do this. And he says, then don't do it and don't do it as unto the Lord. And if you were to go against your conscience in that way and do it, even though you believe it's wrong, then for you, it would be a sin. So I think that's a good principle to follow in this case. I did think about one more biblical principle that I think is a factor here. And and this is what it is. If you look at the eschatological trajectory of the scriptures, here's what it comes down to. We are seeing with the Bible, you know, what is what does Jesus say at the end? Behold, I renew all things. I make all things new. So there's this sense in which, if you follow the Bible, it's essentially circular, but it's an upward spiraling circle in this sense, right? We started out in a garden in harmony with no sin and with harmony between people, nature, and God. And then we sinned. All of nature was fallen. For us, we're fallen. And we, because we're fallen, we bring upon ourselves judgment and the wrath of God against our rebellion and sins, right? So we're fallen. That creates separation between us and God. All of creation is not what it was once meant to be. And so we go through this, this great story in which God saves us himself through the person of Jesus. And then what happens is that there's this time of the gospel being spread. That's the time we're in now. And then we're told what happens after this is that there's a time of tribulation. Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, he ultimately judges sin, Satan, and death forever. They're gone forever. He wipes away every tear from those who are saved. And we, we are and brought into the wedding feast of the Lamb. But here's my point. Then we're brought back to Eden kind of, but it's Eden fulfilled. So it's uh, again, a garden, but this time it's not just a garden with, with only plants. It's now a garden city. Um, and in the city is God. There's the tree of life in the middle of it. There's the, this river that flows through it. And the point is that God is renewing all things. He's restoring that which was broken and lost to sin, but not just restoring it, but fulfilling what it would have been if sin had never entered the world and messed it all up. So if that's the trajectory of the Bible, towards restoration and towards redemption of all things, then what does that say about practices like rock and roll? In other words, it would be a very gospel-centered or gospel-focused thing for us to seek to redeem these things, which the devil has, you know, why does the devil get to have all the good music? Well, let's take that from the devil and we'll make it our own and we'll use it to worship Jesus, right? So we'll take your winter solstice and we'll turn it into a celebration of Jesus. We'll take your whatever it is and we'll turn it into a celebration of Jesus. So I think that's a pretty valid argument. But on the other hand, 
maybe we need to change the names of it. Like we did with Christmas, right? Because I'm not, I'm not comfortable with like practicing transcendental meditation um, because of its origin. And yet the Bible talks about meditation. It's different in the sense of it's not about emptying your mind, but it's about filling your mind. But, you know, this idea that we can take these things and own them and use them for good and for the gospel is probably a very gospelly thing to do, this restoration and, and redemption. Yeah, I, I mean, just for our listeners, we, we um, you know, just, you know, you've listened this far, and so, and your main takeaway at this point is that, okay, uh, so I have a stressful life, I need to do yoga. And so I think, I think it is important. And I think I asked you this question before, as we prepared for this uh, uh, podcast, was that when you're looking at somebody like Justin Martyr, or you're looking at someone like Thomas Aquinas, and you say, what was the source of their salvation? What was the source of their faith? Was it Plato? Was it these other things? Was it Justin Martyr's Greek, you know, philosophy? And, you know, and I think that's a valid question we should be asking, right? I can't speak for Thomas Aquinas, um, but I can say for sure with Justin Martyr that it was Jesus. He was a Jesus guy, right? Like, so his faith and confidence was in Jesus, and he would say, apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. Now, with with just with. Um, Thomas Aquinas, it's actually a little bit more iffy because he actually said some weird stuff that mm-hmm. makes me think that maybe maybe he didn't actually understand the gospel because he uses phrases like he says, Plato was a Christian before Christ. Well, wait a second. How do you be a... You know, he essentially expects that Plato mm-hmm. and Aristotle are saved. Um, and it's like, wait a second. I don't think so. I don't think that's how salvation works, man. Like... We have the scriptures. That's what I'm saying. Justin Martyr was like, man, here's a guy who understands the gospel. And all he's saying is, you know, the Greeks weren't completely wrong in everything they said. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff they say is also said in the Bible. And and so he said, we should use those things we have in common as bridges for evangelism. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tertullian was like, no, 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 no. Even if they got some stuff right, we have the Bible and we need to be about that and like forget that Greek philosophy stuff. You shouldn't have anything to do with it. Just get away from it. So, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, Thomas Aquinas is a different story. But, you know, I guess my, my takeaway would be this. Like, I don't actually think I would encourage anybody to do yoga um, just because of the religious intonations, connotations, history that come with it. But I would encourage them to move their body and, you know, to as a form of releasing stress, as a form of even uh, honoring God who gave us good. I mean, if it, I, I know for me personally, a huge stress relief is the fact that I, I run, right? That, that helps me mm-hmm. so much uh, in many ways, regulating my physical body, regulating my emotions, helping me sleep better, etc. Um, so I think there's some good principles in there, but maybe we don't need to call it yoga. Maybe we don't need to follow those exact practices and systems. And I know there have been attempts to do this, mm-hmm. right? Like Pilates and other forms of stretching exercises yeah. um, that don't include those things. So, I mean, I think like if we're going to do meditation, let's do uniquely Christian meditation, mm-hmm. filling our minds with the scripture. 
um, and meditating on the scriptures, not just meditating on nothing and opening ourselves up to, to whatever might come into our mind. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. So I, I wanted to read you this quote from Gregory the Great. Now, he was a pope in the late 500s. And what's particularly interesting is what he said to this guy named Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent by Gregory the Great uh, with a company of monks um, as missionaries to the British Isles. And here's what he told them, actually to modern-day England. And they got there, Augustine and his group of monks as missionaries, they got there, and they found that England uh, was you know, overrun with Druids and pagans. And they said, well, what should we do? You know, they have all these temples. And so as we convert them to Christianity, what should we do with the temples? What should we do with their ceremonies? And here's what Gregory the Great said. Um, and it, it's an interesting framework for contextualization. He said, the heathen temples of these people do not need to be destroyed, only the idols which are found in them. If the temples are well-built structures... It's a good idea to detach them from the service of the devil and adapt them for the worship of the true God. And since the people are accustomed, when they assemble for sacrifice, to kill oxen and sacrifice to the devils, it may be reasonable to appoint a festival for the people in way of exchange. The people may learn to sacrifice their cattle not in honor of the devil, but in honor to God and for food. If we allow them these outward joys, they are more likely to find the way to true inner joy. And, and he goes on. But I think that's a really interesting thing because that wasn't the way that all missionaries acted. There were missionaries like Boniface in Germany, and his whole thing was there was this like sacred tree that these pagan people used to worship. And he literally got out an axe and cut it down right in front of them and said, there's your God, he's dead, now worship Jesus. <laughs> and then he uh, took their pagan temples, and rather than converting them into churches, he raised them to the ground and said, nope, we're going to start over. And um, again, this is the same idea. You know, He basically said, there is nothing redeemable in these practices. We need to start it at zero and build up from there uh, uniquely Christian practices that have no, um, you know, no ties in any way to paganism. You know, so... These are two different ways, and, and you can follow it throughout history. Different missionaries have done this mm -hmm. in different ways, and sometimes it's been Both ends and, of the spectrum, yeah. you know, where they're dressing up African natives in suits and ties and singing How Great Thou Art in English, you know, and making them British, you know, yeah. to what, you know, a lot of what happened in Japan where they just kind of like, well, or in India, well, Jesus is just another, is a... He's a better one of your gods, you know, yeah. like a, a better Buddha, a better whatever. Yeah. Um, and what just came to my mind when you talk about the sacrifices and all of that was was just the the children of Israel, the the sacrificial system that God laid into place was not something out of left field. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, we're doing this brand new thing called sacrificing idol, uh, animals on an altar. These were already common practices, you know, of the day. There was sacrifice happening. And, you know, in a sense, God, that's what he was saying. We're going to sacrifice to the true God. The idea of shedding blood and all that stuff was, that was already built into to the framework of that region. And yeah. it's, and you know, it wasn't like completely 
brand new thing that God introduced and said, now we're going to suddenly do this. You know, the sacrificial system was, you know, altars and all that kind of stuff was was very common in that day. And it was, in a sense, you could say, redeemed for the one true God of Israel. Even the name of God that's used in the Bible, there are a few names that are used, right? So there's the personal name of God, Yahweh, also sometimes pronounced Jehovah, though probably incorrectly. Um, and then there's the word El, E-L, like it's actually in the word Israel, right, which means governed by God. Um, so El Al is God Airlines, right? Like that's, so anytime you see the word El, E-L, um, that is the Hebrew word for God. It's like the general word for God, like our word in English, God. Um, but what's so interesting is that it's not a uniquely Hebrew word. It's also found in all the other languages in the ancient Near East, is that they also use the word El to speak of God. And um, that's pretty interesting because it's the same thing you're talking about. It's God saying, um, these people are worshiping and seeking God, but I am the one true God that they are seeking without realizing or without knowing it. And like you said, they've, they've gotten some things right, but some things are completely wrong. And um, so, you know, essentially using the word L for God is a redemption of that ancient Near East practice that existed before the time of Abraham. Yeah. No, it's so, yeah, and this is a huge, huge topic. And then, you know, of course, Christians fall across the spectrum as to what, you know, who decides. And, you know, maybe the Tertullian way is kind of like the safe way. Well, we're just not going to talk to anybody that has any kind of non-Christian practice, but then it makes it difficult for the gospel, you know, yeah. to find that. You know, Tim Keller talks a lot about finding that middle ground and f to start a conversation. You Very know? similar to, to Justin Martyr, find that bridge, mm -hmm. the thing that you can agree on and use that, like that's what Paul does on uh, Mars Hill in, the, in Athens in Acts 17. He finds a lot of common ground, and then he says, okay, but here's the thing that's incomplete, right? I'm here to tell you about the God that you worship and you, the unknown God that you, you know in some way exists, and yet you are not worshiping him. I'm here to tell you who he is, and he is the supreme God above all other gods, right? And so he's doing what Justin Martyr said. So I guess I would say this, that it seems to me that Justin Martyr's heart was really in the right place, which is he was a Jesus guy. He wasn't looking to compromise. He wasn't looking to uh, get into what we call syncretism, which is essentially compromise. And uh, he was just trying to say, how can we reach Greek people? Well, there are a few things that they are correct about, that the Bible also says are true, and hopefully we can use those things as bridges for evangelism. So I would say take that principle and also take the understanding that God is redeeming all things. And I think that, you know, as much as some people might not, some people, you know, who are really hardline about this would reject Christmas because of its... Um, pagan origin. Remember that Christmas was originally a pagan solstice festival that was taken, transformed, given a new meaning, and completely detached from anything pagan, right? Like when we worship Jesus on Christmas, 
we are not worshiping anything pagan. Mm-hmm. It's all about Jesus. Yeah, in a sense, the world has to work hard to detach themselves from the holiday because it's mm-hmm. become all about Jesus. And we can see that in our culture today. We're going to call it happy holidays. We're not going to say, you know, it's in the name. We And in that sense, you know, we... We uh, the Christian culture has in successfully wrestled that away, and whereas you now see the world trying to say, well, we don't want to have anything to do with that because that's a Christian thing, you know. So that that is in a sense a success. Yeah. Well, like like I said, we are playing in the sandbox of the gray area a little bit in so many of these areas, and I would just encourage people. Um, Justin ha- or Justin had a lot of good things to say. Tertullian had a good thing to say in the sense of like. Be careful as you deal with these things. Don't deal with them blindly. Like, don't deal with them not realizing that the world is, uh, there is a spiritual battle taking place. And, and you should take these things seriously and, and be cautious about them. And yet, um, you know, how can, we, how can we redeem things for Christ. So I think that asking the right questions and engaging in these thoughts as you engage in these practices, that is the right way forward. But also, like you said, the, the meat sacrifice to idols principles are very applicable here. If you uh, believe that it is wrong for you to do those things, then by all means, don't do them as unto the Lord. Um, and um yeah, and we want to have charity towards those who in these gray areas might differ a little bit on their opinion than ours. Yeah, no, great thoughts. Great thoughts. Hey, well, thank you so much for listening in. If you have questions, if you have further thoughts, there is a place on Spotify where you can, if you're listening on Spotify, where you can enter those questions. And I'd love to hear them. And maybe someday if we get some questions in, like a good number, we'll do like a mailbox episode where we go through and just answer some of those questions quickly. Um, For those of you who are not listening on Spotify, you can go to the website nickkady.org n-i-c-k-c-a-d-y.org and there's a place there where you can submit questions or ideas for f- future episodes please do that and we'd love to hear your feedback if you haven't yet done so please leave a rating and review particularly on the Apple Podcasts platform there's a place there where you can leave a rating and review and uh, that really boosts us in the algorithm when we get especially written reviews so really appreciate that and um, finally, just uh, thanks again for listening and make sure to visit the written blog, Theology for the People, over at nickkady.org. And we'll see you next time. God bless you.